Well, tonight we were going to continue to pursue the application of mercy, and now we can add peace um, into the equation. Now we have started that on Sunday morning uh, within the church, within the context of a local church. And our ministry beyond our walls, really, and how we extend mercy to others. Uh, but again, I want to re-emphasize, I'm going to do that by reading a couple passages, that if we're not demonstrating mercy within the church, the world knows it. I don't know how they know it, but they figure it out. Uh, they know it um, by their contact with Christians and when they see Christians fighting and doing things that are sometimes strictly stated in the Bible not to do, taking each other to court, um, splitting and dividing, uh, things along that line, then the world takes notice. They notice that seemingly you can be 99 times merciful and you have the one time that there is an internal unity or peace or mercy and the world will notice it, and they will mark it and remember it. And so it is vitally important that we rediscover it, that we involve ourselves in this process more substantially, because there's a lot at stake out there. Uh, but we do want to talk about the applying of mercy to, to the world, and of introducing the concepts of peace that we have begun to study this morning uh, and obviously that's focused more on evangelism once we get outside the church walls. Um, but just as a quick review um, from Philippians last week and then the prior week where we were simply revisiting the concept that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, we can come here and do a lot of things um, and think we're pleasing God, worshipful things, but without mercy, God says that's, that's really no, no value to him. He doesn't, he doesn't look favorably upon it. It is not a sacrifice that he is accepting. Uh, if we do not have mercy in our hearts toward one another, first and foremost, and expressing that by extending it, whether it's received or rejected to others. So I wanted to go to another example. We used Philippians last week where Paul was showing himself how he extends mercy to those that seem to be wrongly motivated in their ministry to add to his chains, he says. They do it for the wrong motives, but at least they're preaching Christ. So different than false teachers... Um, although, once you get wrongly motivated, it's very easy to fall into false teaching um, because your heart isn't in the right place, even though your words and ministry might be. And then, of course, he wants to apply that in the church to two people that were having some disagreement. And in the midst of that, in between these two, his personal example and his call for this to be within the church, to be of one mind, is to put on the mind of Christ. And we recognize humility as part of mercy, both in the expression of it and the offer of it is very humbling, which is maybe why we don't do it very much, and in the acceptance of it is also humbling, which also might be why we don't do very much of it. Because we have to humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves to offer this and to tell people that um, 
We will expose ourselves once again to them, to hurt us, to do injury to us. Uh, if they repent and want to come back and restore things, to be reconciled, to be at peace with us. And equally, it requires a lot from us to acknowledge our sin and humble ourselves and accept someone else's mercy, realizing that what they're saying is you deserve to be ostracized. You deserve to be punished. But we are not exercising that at all, and we are uh, leaving that to God to exercise. Um, and so we come to you with that offer. And so we saw humility as being the foundation of mercy on a human perspective, as far as the church goes. I want to look at another example, and we have two again in the same passage, same author, Paul. If you go to 2 Corinthians, not only is there humility required, there is another element for us to give and receive mercy. Especially in the reception of mercy, but on a, God doesn't require this on his part, although I think there is an element of it there in, in God. Um, but certainly I think it is there in our part. So let's just pick up chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians very quickly. And it says, um, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things." Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And I wish that were still true of the church today, that we were not ignorant of, Christ, of Satan's use of these devices to bring misery and disruption and separation within the church. We are called to be at peace. We are called to be merciful one to another. And Satan can easily come in, take advantage of the opportunity to bring division and uh, to bring a wrong sorrow. And I want to talk about that. So we find here, Paul has instructed the church in 1 Corinthians to do what? Get the sin out of your church. And we always study 1 Corinthians about church discipline, that it's a carnal church. How can God be pleased with you? How can he bless you? How can he work through you if you are doing sin that is even not spoken of in the world? 
that you have this kind of immorality going on, you have covetousness going on, you have all this stuff going on in your church. How in the world do you think God is going to bless you? So that was 1 Corinthians, very strong, um, almost harsh at times, but very pointed. Get this sin out of your church. Well, they did. And now we begin to see the heart behind that instruction. Though the tone of the letter was harsh, what, what was Paul says, say here? When I wrote that letter, what was my attitude of my heart? Was it antagonistic towards you? Were you the enemy? No, we are at peace. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is sin. Not each other. So when I wrote this, I had a purpose. And the purpose was that you could restore this person by being harsh to them that they might repent. That they might recognize this is a serious matter. These people take this very seriously. God takes this very seriously. I should re-examine my life and get this out of there. That was his intent. And he exposes that here in this letter. That in, in verse 4, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. He was sorry... He had sorrow that there was sin in the church. Does God have sorrow when there is sin among his people? Yes. And probably one of the best illustrations of that real quick is when Jesus uh, is on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem. What does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I have longed to gather you under my wings, but you weren't willing. That's the heart of an accusation that's goal is not condemnation, but mercy. We want to extend you mercy, but you aren't allowing it because you aren't sorry. And so there was a sorrow. There's an there's a, there's a, a anguish. And that needs to be accompanying mercy. That if you're going to try to show mercy to someone, you need to recognize you cannot have a vindictive heart attitude toward that person. You can't say, we're going to do these steps and then get rid of them. If that's your attitude, you're doing it all wrong, and you aren't having mercy, don't consider yourself merciful, and uh, you're just trying to not have to face the problem anymore. Rather, we, with anguish of heart, with many tears, with much affliction, he says, um, I had to write very strong words trying to get you to understand the seriousness of sin and what it can do. I mean, some of you were dying because of your sin. The way you were mistreating the communion table and love feasts and all that, I mean, it was very strongly stated. So, with, to show mercy, not only do we need humility that we studied last week, we need sorrow. You must have a sorrow over the sin that your brother or sister or even neighbor, if they're not a believer, that they have in their life. Um, is it an affront to us? Yes. Did it sometimes injure us? Yes. But our sorrow isn't over our personal injury. And that's what Paul says here. I wasn't sorry for myself. I didn't do this for myself, and, and I don't want you to think that, you, that the issue was you offending me. The issue is you offended God. And I was trying to save you from the 
judgment that would come on you and was coming on you for that cause. And so he calls them to respond to his godly sorrow that wasn't for repentance purposes, but what was necessary for the showing of mercy. Now they had to have that same sorrow, and they weren't showing it. They weren't showing mercy to this one. They were only showing judgment. They identified the sin. They identified the sinner. They knew exactly who Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians. They put their thumb on him. They drove him out. I don't know what all they did, but the guy broke, and he was sorry, and he wanted to repent and make it right, and the church was like, we don't trust you. You just stay over there. You should suffer for a while. And Paul says, no, that's how Satan gets his inroad. He takes advantage of those things when people are discouraged by that because you're not showing mercy to each other, and that's when Satan disrupts the church. This is a church that has gone from being carnal to being staunchly demanding of righteousness. Mercy is in between there. Mercy is, I still hold to righteousness, but I acknowledge that we're all sinners and we have to address this. We do it with sorrow, we do it with humility, but we need to address sin. And yes, we even have to expose ourselves that what if he's not really sorry? What if he's just sorry he got caught? Have you ever heard that? They're not sorry, they're just sorry they got caught. Uh, most children, I find, are usually just sorry they got caught, including teenagers. Right, Bill? School, they're mostly just sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry for what they did. Um, and that's a sad case of our world today. Our world is so... Right. Yeah, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry, and now... Uh, but never the, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't ever want to do that again. That is the add to repentance. Um, the attitude of, that is not repentance, that is not godly sorrow, is I don't ever want to get caught doing that. I've got to be sneakier next time. I shouldn't have done it at that time because that's when I was being watched. Well, God's always seeing your activity. So, we are looking for true sorrow. Well, how do we measure sorrow? Well, we don't know the heart of men. And so, yes, to show mercy means you have to risk that they aren't truly sorry and they're going to burn you again. But the alternative is to do what the Corinthians did, and Paul says that's not right. Because that opens the door for Satan to take advantage and bring discouragement and bitterness within your church. And he says, you're, we're not unaware of his schemes. He'll use that. And yes, you can claim we stand for righteousness, but you have not shown mercy to someone who has obviously demonstrated, at least on some degree, maybe not to your liking, but on whether it's a superficial level or not, you don't know because you don't know his heart. Remorse. He has shown sorrow and repentance. So we're going to grant them mercy. We've done this several times in our church where we've brought people before you who said they were sorry and and we were excited and thrilled, and, and then they went right back to their sin, like a dog to its vomit. And you might say, well, were we mistaken? No, they were. We were right. 
Because that is the goal, the objective. We should respond to a, to a, a presentation of sorrow and repentance with immediate demonstration of mercy. Because we're broken over what's happened. And we want it, desperately want it to be restored. And we'll pay the price. We've really paid the price because we're going to bring you back in here. We're going to restore. We're going to, we're going to support you and, and make all the resources of the church available to you to bring that reconciliation to bear. We are not at war with one another. We are at peace. And so we want to see grief. We want to see sorrow. Um, we have to have it within ourselves. Um, but again, what the Corinthians were doing was like, we're not sure you're really sorry. And, and Paul says, hey, you're opening a door that Satan is glad to rush into your church through. Don't let that happen. So let's talk about sorrow, and he's going to readdress this um, a little bit later in uh, um, chapter 7. He's going to talk about what, how repentance works and how we are to be engaged in it, both in the giving of mercy and in the receiving of mercy. To accept an offer of mercy from each other, um, which means, you know, you did something wrong and you really should be sorry for that and I'm ready to forgive you once you are. And I do so with tears in my eyes because right now we are at enmity with each other over your sin. And if that offends them, which it probably will, then we pray for them and we are broken and sorrowful that they responded that way, and we pray that God humbles them. And that is our prayer for all of those that are currently under church discipline in this church. We keep praying, Lord, break them down. Do whatever it takes to humble themselves to the point that they will acknowledge their sin and seek to make things right. Um, you cannot have reconciliation without the first and the second. People want to say, well, I'm sorry for my sin, but I don't want to come back. Well, then you're not interested in reconciliation, and that is not our objective. Our objective is to be reconciled, to be brought back into fellowship with one another. That is our objective. And sometimes that requires us to make more demands than just that. But we don't want to be so extensive that we are isolating them and opening the door for Satan to come in through bitterness. So let's look at chapter 7. <clears throat> uh, let's uh, go ahead and, um, well, I'll pick up verse 6. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul's a little down. I mean, I know how he feels. You minister and minister to people, and then you hear word that they're involved in sin. It's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. We gave them the truth, and they have Christ and the Holy Spirit. They know better. And I've said that plenty in my ministry. How can this happen to this person? They know better. I know they've been taught better. And so there is a mourning and Paul was in mourning, and he needed comforting, and God comforted him 
by this word that they were responding to his offer of mercy that required them to acknowledge their guilt. Verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little, for a while. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, though I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So, you had two parties, those who were doing the wrong and those who were being wronged. And Paul says, listen, I, I wrote the letter not against one and for the other. I wrote the, one to, I wrote the one letter to both parties because you both, for reconciliation to happen, it takes both parties. And you both needed to have sorrow. And so, yes, it is fine that the church was sorry to get such a harsh letter from their spiritual mentor, their spiritual founder. They were sorry that, they, that he would feel the need to write such a letter. But they didn't respond with an arrogant, flippant attitude. They responded in a humble fashion with reciprocal sorrow. They were sorry, and they wanted to take the actions to make it right. And this is what godly sorrow does. It brings repentance to say, we want to make it right. And the question was last, last week, you know, when you go to people and say, you know, you sinned against me, um, that they may not agree with you. And that's absolutely going to be the case, not only in the world, but in the Christian community. And that's why... We need to almost take the tenor of 1 Corinthians and very explicitly describe the sin. This is what you have done against me. I am recounting it to you because it still stands between you and me. That sin is the enmity, the wall of separation between you and me. That is the sin. I'm the offended party and I'm sorry for that. I can't fellowship with you like I should be able to because of that. I can't eat with you. I can't celebrate anything in your life, really. I just can't because of the damage that you have done in your wake because of your sin. I cannot do that. And that brings grief to my heart and to my life. And the only way to resolve that is confront you with what you've done and tell you that I would like to be reconciled but it's going to require you to not just apologize I'm sorry but to truly be sorrowful to the point of wanting to make it right 
And do you notice what wanting to make it right sounds like? Looks at, look at the words he uses. You want to be vindicated. You want to be um, clear yourself. You, want, you have indignation, which we usually think of that as a negative way. How dare you? But rather is, we don't want this to be said of us anymore. That's really the Greek term indignation there. It's, I don't want this to be said of my church anymore. I want to make it right forever. I don't want this to ever happen again. Um, what fear, what zeal. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this right, to make this right. It says what vehement desire, uh, vindication. The, I want to set it all right. That is the evidence of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. I want to make this right. What do you require of me? And so Paul went to them with godly sorrow, wanting to have mercy in their life, chastising them with very specific, direct accusations and pointing out their sin and saying, this isn't right. And their response was not, it <laughs> says you. Um, no, the response was sorrow. And that sorrow that brings, godly sorrow that brings repentance acknowledges sin and says, I want it out of my life. That's repentance. And that's the difference between remorse. Remorse just says, I'm sorry for it, but I have no plans to change my life. Repentance says, I'm sorry for it. I don't ever want it to happen again. What do I need to do? What measures do I need to take? And some of our leadership guys have been here and know that when we engage somebody who comes to us with that godly sorrow, we start laying it out and saying, well, here's what you need to take. And the ladies did that um, on occasions as well. Here's the steps you need to take. And a truly sorrowful person will not just, um, well, okay, if I have to, they will completely embrace that and say, okay, I'll do it. Because they want to make it right. And that's what the Corinthian church did. They embraced it, everything Paul said, and they wanted to do it to obsession almost. They were that anxious to make sure that they made it right. And Paul says, well, you, you went a little overboard. You need to moderate a little bit. Now show the mercy to this guy that you've shown. That you, you, you've received mercy from me, from God. Show it to this man because he's showing sorrow too. But he said, this brings joy. This brings reconciliation. This is what godly sorrow brings repentance looks like. It is, I will embrace everything needed to make this right. Not just say I'm going to do it, but actually do it. You give me a list, I'm going to take it, and it's going to be the drive of my existence to go through this list and do exactly what is required of me rarely have I found that in my pastoral experience. Even those that come forward and say, I'm sorry, they weep, they ask for forgiveness, and we, um, we show them mercy, and then we say, well, here we, here's the fruits of repentance we want to see in your life. Here's how to start making this right in your life. And you see within a week sometimes, sometimes within hours, you see them start to resist it. And I go, and I start praying. Oh, Lord, they've come this far. Don't stop. Don't let them stop. Don't, and, I, and I'll pursue them. You agreed. And this is 
the way we're going to fix this. This is, the, this, is the, this is righteousness. This is the right tax you need to take. This is the approach you need to have. Please embrace this. Please. And when they don't, they've exposed something. That they were remorseful that night or that day that we brought them before the church, but they weren't repentant. They did not want to change things in their life to make it right, to vindicate themselves, to, to with complete zeal, just, in, just grab on. And when that occurs, we are stuck again. We're stuck back to the enmity. We're stuck back to the point that now you've put us in this really rotten position. And we're back to sorrow. Because how do I relate to you? You say you're sorry that happened, but you do nothing, nothing to make it right. So where's the repentance? Well, I'll tell you where it is. Nowhere. It doesn't exist. It doesn't matter what they declare, their behavior, if it doesn't follow this perspective of Corinthians, it's not there. Why was Paul so excited about this church? Is because of the overwhelming way they just wanted to make it all right. The zeal. And Paul knows about this, doesn't he? It's no mistaking who wrote this and what he was looking for. It's what happened in his own life. What happened when he accepted Christ? All the zeal that was going into opposing Christ went into serving Christ. He didn't just get saved and says, okay, well, I'll just be kind of neutral out here. Oh, no, he's a... I'm taking everybody on for Jesus. You know, I'm going to go right back in there to Damascus, and the, and the brothers are still afraid of him. He's like, oh, and, and I'm going to go da- back down to Jerusalem, and again, the Christians are afraid of him. He's taking on anybody and everybody for Christ. And what is the zeal drive of Paul? It is genuine repentance. He wanted to make a 180-degree turn in his life and put all the energies he put into his sin he wants to put into righteousness. That's what repentance looks like. And when I see someone even acknowledge their sin, yes, I've sinned. Uh, I did wrong. This, this wasn't right. I shouldn't have done that. And I was like, okay, well, let's take this corrective action. Uh, mm, uh, I guess I should, in the, the most recent time, I guess I should do that. I was like, why? You're not sorry. You do that after you're sorry. You say you're sorry, but as soon as you start him hawing over taking action to reconcile with a church, you immediately reveal that you're not sorry. Not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Because this is what godly sorrow leads to repentance looks like. It is zealous to make it right. And these Corinthians were going to dot every I, cross every T, build every bridge they had to to get this right between them and Paul between them and God. And the evidence is, is that the man who was sitting in their church that Paul pointed the finger at specifically was probably also doing the same thing. And it was like, take him back. Just like I'm taking you back. I'm not sorry I made you sorry because of the good that came out of it. Now you have revealed your repentance. It's been exposed and now I can have great joy. There was no question in Paul's mind that the Corinthian church was repentant. And this is the verse that recounts it. 
verse 11. You sorrowed in a godly manner, and here's what it produced in you. What does repentance produce in you? A zeal to do right, to counter all the wrong that you did. And so I have to conclude that every person that will not, with great zeal, do everything they can to make it right after having wronged, is still in the state of not having godly sorrow over what they did. Even when they acknowledge it was wrong. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I guess I should apologize. You guess? Maybe I... No, you have wronged people. Where is the sorrow? Where is the brokenness? Where are the tears over what you have done to people that you called your brethren? And so how can we fellowship with you? We have a wall between you and I, and that is your sin. And I'm here looking over the wall telling you, you have sin in your life. You have produced enmity between us. I would like to forgive you. Please. And I'm crying as I say this. Please. Set it right. And they're over there going, I kind of like the wall. I'm okay at the wall. You don't want to be restored to our church. You don't want to be reconciled. You don't want to make this right. You just want to appease your conscience by saying you're sorry. That doesn't cut it in God's plan. It doesn't cut it in the church. And so we break fellowship. We have enmity. We have no peace between us. Not because we don't want peace, but because they won't do what is necessary to to bring us to peace. And we are brokenhearted over that. We don't rejoice in it. We aren't smug about it. We are broken that I cannot fellowship with you. I cannot do it. For you are far off. And you need to be, I'm trying to bring you near, but you resist because you are smug in your sin. And you will not humble yourself. You have no godly sorrow. And hence, you will do nothing to show your repentance. What is it producing in you? Where is the evidence? And Paul says, I see in you the evidence, the production of true godly sorrow and repentance. You want to make it right, you'll take every measure to do that. I'm sorry, I've done something wrong with you, I'm going to make it right, I'll do whatever I need to do. You know, the world understands that. When you screw up and take responsibility for it, you do what's necessary to make it right. My roofer over here made a, a mistake on his thing. His statement was, I'll make this right. I'll make this right because he wants to establish his business. I'll make this right. The world understands this concept. Why don't Christians? You've done the wrong. Do everything you can to make it right. That shows that you are really sorry it happened. Now, the problem is, is if we don't come to them with the right heart, can they ever do enough to make it right? Huh? Can they ever do enough to make it right, really, if we don't want to be merciful? 
No, we can hold it over their head forever. So a merciful heart says, oh, please make it right. And that's why Paul says, I wrote that to you with tears of my eyes, wanting you to do exactly what you did do. You were sorrowful with godly sorrow. It brought repentance, and here's what it produced in you. And so now I'm comforted. Verse 13, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly for more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. How refreshing it would be to have someone come in and say, what we did was so wrong to you. And we are so sorry, and we're going to take every measure to make it right that you require of us to evidence that, and we want to be reconciled and be brought back into this church. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to see it in my life. And that's the saddest part. And I'm not sure that most of us are willing to do what the Corinthians did to produce that kind of, to help produce that kind of sorrow in somebody's life. To just say, I cannot. I cannot. Not I will not. I cannot in right conscience fellowship with you while there is this enmity between us. I cannot. Yes, that's costly. But to fail to do so does what? It leaves the sin intact. And you're willing to live as neighbors with a big wall between you. I know that's a very New Mexican thing. It's not that way in other parts of the country. You're willing to live with a great big wall intact and call each other neighbors with no intimacy, no, con- no true intimacy, because that wall of sin is still sitting there like the elephant in the room between you. And you're just pretending it's not there. It's kind of like the old TV show where the guy was out there talking to the neighbor over the fence. You never saw the neighbor's face. I don't remember what TV show that was. Huh? Tim, home improvement. And uh, it's like, well, you never got intimate with him because you never even saw his face. And that's what we're kind of willing to do with our brothers in Christ who have sin at enmity with the church. Why do you think Paul is so specific? Say, don't eat with them, don't fellowship, don't extend this to them, this, that, because you're trying to smack them with how much damage and hurt their sin has caused with the hope that they will be sorry enough to do whatever it takes to make it right. Not because we're trying to punish them. We are not punishing anybody. God will punish sin. That is not our intent to punish, but is to say, how can I, how can I have a relationship with you with this injury that you've caused to me and our church between us? We just pretend it doesn't exist? Well, then you are not merciful because now the sin will never leave. God's mercy is to come and say, you're a sinner deserving of judgment and you're going to get it unless you accept what I offer a way of forgiveness. 
If you sit there and say, well, I don't think it's really that bad, then the sin stands and you're on your way to eternal punishment. And so, no, you're not being loving by just overlooking it and pretending it doesn't exist. You're actually being very unloving and very selfish. Um, I know it's easier for you, but it's not godly because you're helping ease them when they should be pressed into godly sorrow. Paul's letter was harsh. You read through that, and it's slap, 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 slap. But it was not to punish them. It was not to injure them. It was to bring sorrow in their life over their sin, that they might be moved to repentance and do verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. Do whatever it takes to make this right. Because we value our relationship with Paul so much, how can we bring him this kind of sorrow and hurt and do nothing? That's godly sorrow. That's what repentance looks like. How do you judge repentance? What does it produce in their life? And this is an excellent list that Paul gives. Where's the zeal to make it right? I respond to God's forgiveness, how? With thanksgiving and with a zeal that I can... I have a debt that I can never repay, but I will strive to walk worthy of it. I will do whatever it takes to show God how thankful I am for the mercy he's shown me. That's a repentant heart. Not, I'm going to try out this salvation and see if it works for me. Um, when people give me that response, I'm like, go away. You're not God, you have no godly sorrow. None. So distinguish that, and uh, so when we exercise mercy and we seek peace, um, this is a biblical example. It took me a lot longer to share that than I planned. I wanted to have a little more discussion tonight, but we'll do that next week, all right? And we'll have some discussion of the application of this. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for powerful presentation of... Uh, how mercy and peace are accomplished with the, among your people. And Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the Corinthians. We always call them the carnal church, but that was only for a season. For they purged that from themselves by the wonder of your work in their lives through your prophet, apostle, your word, your spirit. Lord, we thank you for the evidence that, yes, it works if we'll simply commit ourselves to it. And Lord, we know that these are hard things that we are being taught and commanded to do. And for that reason, we have neglected to do them, really. And for this, we ask your forgiveness that we might be truly merciful, willing to gulp hard and go tell people what they have wronged with an expectation of a repentant response that looks like what's described here. Lord, we thank you for your instruction. Give us the courage, the fortitude, 
the strength to be merciful like you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.